0: You're listening to Rambling with Ryu, hosted by Bean, the co-founder of Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center living with a T10 spinal cord injury, and Nancy, a professional kinesiologist specializing in pediatric and adult neurorehabilitation. Welcome to our activity-based therapy series, where we talk to leading clinicians, researchers, and those with lived experience as we explore the realm of neurorecovery. On this podcast, we educate on the lesser-known topics and give practical tips and tricks to help elevate your practice.
1: Today, we're going to be speaking about spinal cord injury and bladder management. We have some really special guests with us today. We have Dr. Samar Shamut, who is a Fellow in Functional and Reconstructive Urology for the University of Calgary at the Rocky View Hospital. We also have Steve Crochetier, who is the owner of Euro Medical Alberta, and he also has 10 years of lived experience with a spinal cord injury. And we're also speaking with Casey Aiello, who has 21 years of lived experience and also currently has a suprapubic catheter that everyone is super curious about, and we'll get to ask all of these guys some really important questions. So let's get this going. Dr. Shamut, we'll start with you. I'll get you just to give us a little bit more information about you and uh, how you got to where you are.
2: Thanks for everyone for inviting me for such an important talk and to be part of this uh, amazing talk. I've been practicing urology for the past 10 years between uh, different countries, uh, including uh, Europe and uh, end up between Montreal and Calgary. Most recently, I've uh, been uh, within the Rocky View General Hospital, more specific at the Alberta Bladder Healthcare Center, which is uh, probably the largest center here in Calgary, uh, specialized within uh, spinal cord diseases and neurogenic bladder dysfunction as well. So other than uh, we only do, uh, not only doing clinics, surgeries, uh, physiotherapy, and a lot of other uh, investigations and uh, protocols, we are following the guidelines uh, in, the, in terms of uh, the management for the neurogenic bladder, and we are up to date in terms of uh, different management modalities.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Steve, I guess we'll go to you. Do you want to give us a little uh, history about yourself? We know you've been on our podcast before, but for the listener who haven't uh, heard you.
3: Sure, yeah. So first, thank you again for having me on. Of course, this is a very important topic when it comes to spinal cord injuries. And I'm very happy to be part of this. Yeah, so I've been in a wheelchair, like you said, for 10 years. I have a T6 spinal cord injury from a, motor- a motorcycle accident. Since then, I've started a medical supply company here in uh, Alberta called Euro Medical Supplies. and I also work part-time at spinal cord injury as a peer coordinator.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And I'm part of a new advocacy group, called wheels of change and we've been around for about six months now Mm -hmm. but it's a growing it's growing and we're trying to raise some awareness and educate people on some of the issues within the spinal cord injury community
1: yeah cool actually Casey and I are both part of wheels of change and we hope to make some long-lasting change with it Casey we'll go over to you do you want to give us a little bit more history about yourself please
0: Yeah, definitely. As everybody else here, I'm also honored to just take part and I never imagined actually sharing about my experience with bladder, but I'm, I'm glad I'm at a place where I'm comfortable. Uh, It's taken a while. I'm a C6 Asia C incomplete quadriplegic. I've been in a chair for 21 years after I had a snowboarding accident and I'm also part of Wheels of Change and I actually currently work, uh, in Calgary at Alberta Health Services at the Fiddles Medical Center um, supporting the neurosciences.
1: Awesome. We are really excited to have all of you guys here with us talking about, like you have said, that this such an important topic that lots of people have questions about, and I think they're eager to hear your guys' answers. So, Dr.
4: Shamut, maybe we'll talk, start with you. So, yeah, can we just start, Dr. Shamut, with uh, what is the neurogenic bladder?
2: Okay, well, this is an important question to start with uh, to help the patients with spinal cord injury understand uh, the pathophysiology of this condition. So a spinal cord injury uh, can interrupt the coordination between the brain and the bladder, uh, which causes changes to urination. uh, When the functioning of the urinary system is affected by the spinal cord the result is a condition, we call it the neurogenic bladder, or more uh, scientific term, we call it the neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction. Uh, everyone's situation is different and uh, requires individual evaluation and management. So uh, the scientific definition for that, for the neurogenic uh, bladder, is uh, as defined uh, by the International Continent Society, is uh, a neurogenic lower tract uh, dysfunction due to disturbance of the neurological control mechanism. Well, this is uh, the broad definition that's used to describe a multitude of uh, condition of varying severity.
4: All right, awesome. And then can we go into a little bit about um, the control of the bladder?
2: You mean the physiology of that? Yeah.
4: So just the different areas in which, I guess, um, basically how the average able-bodied person urinates. And then we'll go and relate it back to the different types of bladders, if that's okay.
2: Okay. Uh, in terms uh, maybe a question would uh, would raise on the, you know, for someone will ask, what does my spinal cord have to do with my bladder? So mm-hmm. basically, uh, your brain will sense and receive signals through uh, your spinal cord. At the lowest part of the spinal cord is an area called the sacral micturation center that has nerves attached to it that go to and from the bladder these nerves helps to signal the brain when the bladder needs to be emptied they control they also control the sphincter so we can say under this broad topic a spinal cord injury can cause uh, two different types of bladder problems uh, one set of problems uh which occurs immediately after the injury, and the other may begin later on after the injury, what we call it a uh, long-term bladder problems. When you are out of the acute phase, what we call it the spinal shock. So immediately after the spinal cord injury, uh, a patient might experience a spinal shock when the signals from the brain cannot get to any or most of the parts of the body below the spinal injury level. So it's often uh last for between days up to weeks, but sometimes it may last for may may last for several months or longer. A patient may ask like "Does the level of injury may affect uh what problems I can experience uh so the answer would be definitely yes however uh, everyone's bladder and the sphincter act a little differently because of the amount of nerve injury is uh, a little different for each person, even if you have uh the same level of injury as someone else so keeping that in mind the major areas to consider are at or below the sacral maturation syndrome above the sacral maturation syndrome so we have a broadly speaking or generally speaking types of neurogenic bladder is called the spastic bladder or the flaccid bladder So the first one is the spastic bladder, or we call it the upper motor neuron spinal cord injury. When it happens, the injury above the level of the anatomical vertebra uh, thoracic T12. Within this type, the bladder and sphincter muscles become tight and spastic. That's why it's called the spastic bladder. The partial or total loss of communication between the brain can limit the ability to feel the bladder fullness and control the sphincter muscle. hold the urine in so the bladder is spastic causing involuntary reflex voiding and incontinence. Within this uh, this type of uh, bladder there can be also a a loss of coordination in the function between the bladder and the sphincter. Within the normal physiological cycle when the bladder is full it will uh, send signals to the brain And whenever it's convenient, then the brain will send back signals to the sphincter to loosen up, and then the bladder can contract. But with a spinal cord injury, sometimes uh, there's a loss of coordination between the bladder and the sphincter. What we call this condition is a detrusor sphincter dyssynergia. It's where the bladder contracts to empty, but the sphincter muscle stays tight. When this happens, the urine can be forced back up to the ureters and to the kidney, what we call a reflex, and possibly causing renal damage. In terms of the other uh, type of the neurogenic bladder dysfunction, what we call the flaccid bladder or uh, term is flexic bladder, and usually it is related to the injury below the level of T12, thoracic vertebra 12. The partial or total loss of communication between the brain would limit the ability to feel the bladder fullness and here the bladder muscle cannot contract to empty the bladder causing it to overflow where patients will present with retention or inability to uh, completely empty their bladder and sometimes they will present with an overflow what we call it an overflow incontinence where the bladder start after being full start to push out some urine so this can cause uh, urine to be forced back to the ureters, sometimes, to the kidney, and possibly causing the kidney damage. The sphincter muscle may also be relaxed, causing the urine to leak out when the bladder overfills or with coughing, sneezing, or certain activities. Okay then, so how, as a new
4: spinal cord injury patient, would I know that my bladder is working the way it should be?
2: Okay. Well, this is uh, this is important to uh, an important to uh, identify the type of bladder dysfunction uh, the patient of spinal cord injury would have. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the acute phase would be uh, the spinal shock phase, where at this stage, uh, let's say, uh, most of the patient will have an indwelling type of uh, bladder management, a catheter fixed in, and. Uh, the bladder will behave differently. After the bladder will recover from the spinal shock, then we have as a physicians, then we have to reassess the bladder function as well as the sphincter to define the best uh, long-term management because here patients uh, fall under different uh, categories. Uh, We need to know first the type of uh, long-term bladder dysfunction the patient have. Is it a partial or complete loss of the function? what is the type of sphincter dysfunction as well. And then uh, there's a different management modalities. Each, uh, uh, each bladder management should be individualized to uh, certain uh, characteristics, including anatomical factors, patient factors, and other health conditions. So doctors usually, uh, we do a urodynamic study Uh, This study is a test to see how well your bladder and sphincter are working. So it entitles a a catheter, which is a small tube that goes up through the urethra to the bladder, slowly filling the bladder. And uh, within this study, we measure how your bladder and sphincter respond to fluid within the bladder. And this test can help to identify uh, the the type of a bladder dysfunction, uh, as well as there is a type of this test where we can take images concurrently with the study. So it helps to see if there's urine flows back to the kidney. And this will uh, finally help to identify, uh, will help to uh, identify the best bladder management strategy, which fits the patient uh, type of dysfunction uh, and the quality of life.
4: All right, and when you say a uh, urodynamics test, can you just give us a kind of a snapshot of what that looks like for somebody who doesn't know what that is?
2: Okay, so a urodynamic test, what we are, uh, what we call like a urodynamic unit, it's a uh, it's a kind of uh, a physiological uh, test that uh, identify or let's say that uh, check the function of the bladder and uh, lower urine tract as as well, including the bladder, the sphincter, as well as. So as we know, for example, when, uh, when a patient got uh, problems within the heart, they go and they do the ECG. So it draws the electricity for the heart, for example, and they will come to know where is the problem, where is the blockage or whatever. So this is a kind of um, a test that identify the function of the bladder. When the patient present to the urodynamic unit, uh, there should be a standard precautions uh, for this study. A small catheter will be passed to their bladder. Just for the sake of the study, the study itself takes uh, around 15 minutes in total. and uh, we measure we, we put the catheter in, uh, inside the bladder and then we start filling the bladder during the filling. This catheter is connected to certain electrodes within the computer and uh, it will read the pressure inside the bladder. And at the end of uh, filling the bladder, we go to the uh, the voiding phase, or where the patient will be uh, given a chance to empty their bladder. At this point, again, the the system or the computer will uh, will monitor and read the the pressure and uh, within the bladder and within the uh, the sphincter as well. During this study, we have the facility as well. Uh, to take uh, certain images within the x-ray machine that helps to identify if there is any urine or like a contrast that we uh, push to the bladder that reflects back. So overall or in general, it, uh, we are trying with this uh, type of investigation to imitate or to what happens during the normal physiological cycle to see when the bladder fills, how does it behave with the patient?
1: Okay, and then how often
2: would somebody have this test done? Uh, during the acute phase, yeah, we understand that uh, bladder dysfunction will be more or less during the spinal shock, uh, similar within the with different patients, more or less. But after the patients would recover from uh, uh, spinal shock at this level, we need a baseline urodynamic uh, test to identify the long-term bladder dysfunction for them. However, later on, it's not necessarily uh, this test to be, uh, or like, not necessarily that we have to do this test on a frequent, uh, on a frequent basis. But there is a certain indications uh, when patients have, uh, did not improve with the, their uh, bladder management, or the patient start developing uh, more complications in the term of, uh, for example, recurrent stones, recurrent urinary tract infections. Or if the patient, or we are going to do a more invasive uh, type of treatment, whatever surgery, at this point we need uh, a follow-up other than uh, the baseline urodynamic test, because uh, as we know, the bladder function might differ over the years with patients with a spinal cord injury. So the only way we can uh, uh, identify or recognize the changes within the function is through the test, uh, the urodynamic test. Okay, cool.
1: Um, Steve and Casey, we're going to ask you guys if you have had any experience with the aerodynamic
0: test. Um,
1: Okay, maybe Casey, we'll start with you if you've had any experience with the aerodynamic test.
0: Uh, Yes, I've had a a few aerodynamic tests. And um, oddly enough, I was quite surprised when my I think I had my first one, maybe, I don't know, maybe it wasn't my first, but they actually put some probes around in your bum too. So that was kind of weird. I thought I was really caught off guard by that, but it's just, you know, you're there, you do it. It's interesting being so, uh, so much far into my injury, um, how little bladder capacity I have. So my last neurodynamics test that I had, I was only able to hold maybe 200 mils and I got super dysreflexic because my bladder could only hold that much. So yeah.
1: Yeah, I've had the urodynamics test done as well when I was first, well, about a, almost a year after I was paralyzed, and I got up to 400 mLs is the most that my bladder would hold, and I think I'm still kind of at that same same amount. Steve, do you have any experience with the urodynamics test?
3: Hey guys, yeah, so I've, I remember doing the test um, shortly after I was released. Um Glen Rose, uh, I was having issues with my bladder, and I found like it to be very informative, obviously. I learned a lot about my bladder at the time, but at the time I also wasn't paying enough attention. I didn't really understand uh, a lot of what was going on during those tests.
1: And do you remember uh, what your limit for your bladder was, like how many mils you could hold?
3: Honestly, I don't, but I do know that over time, that's changed. I remember at the, uh, at the start, of like uh, shortly after my injury, I had a lot of uh, incontinence problems. And I had a lot of issues with my spastic bladder. I had a low, I, I knew, I remember not being able to hold very much. And I remember that being an issue. And there was some medication um, that I was able to take to help that. But if I remember right, like it
1: was somewhere around the three to four hundred before I would, um, I wasn't able to hold any more. Okay. That seems to be pretty average then.
3: Yeah, I think, I mean, everybody's going to be a little bit different, but I, I also remember the feeling of at the very start not knowing how to measure, how to know how much. I wasn't tracking my amounts when I was capping at the very start. So I found that I, over time, when I started tracking that more and I was able to also track the feelings of if I had a full bladder or not, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So as time went on, I was able to understand my bladder more. The more I um, talk about it, the more I learned about it, obviously, I was able to focus on it more. And some of the reactions that my body would give me or tell me that I had a full bladder started to come into play and change. Um going from a scheduled uh, bladder management, right, Mm -hmm. so every four hours I was able to uh, extend those sometimes or uh, be able to cath earlier because uh, I felt that my bladder was full.
4: Cool, and from here why don't we go to Dr. Shamut and talk about different types of bladder management.
2: Okay, well, uh, bladder management is an ongoing set of treatments and practices uh, that help uh, keep the bladder and the kidneys healthy and free from infection and other complications. So, bladder management cannot fix or solve the problems caused by spinal cord injury, but definitely it can help uh, the patient to manage uh, their bladder to improve their quality of life as well as avoid uh, certain uh, consequences, certain harmful consequences. So, with appropriate uh, bladder management, uh, patient can, uh, well, let's say, uh, the patient and the physician can work together to uh, prevent or minimize uh, uh, incontinence and damage to the kidneys. Uh, it's also important to know that uh, the physician, uh, in in uh, in consultation with the patient, uh, they work together. To choose the best bladder management option that fits uh, into the patient's capabilities, abilities, and lifestyle, and eventually maintains the bladder and the kidney healthy. Uh, In terms of types of bladder management, there are many types of bladder management uh, following uh, the spinal cord injury, each with uh, different advantages and uh, disadvantages. So important thing to know that a bladder management program will allow uh, a patient to empty the bladder in a way that is suitable to, uh, to each patient. So it's important to, uh, to mention here that uh, over two-thirds of spinal cord injury are unable to void on their own after uh, the, the spinal cord injury insult, and uh, which often result in an impaired emptying of the bladder so the best method of bladder management it should preser- end up by preserving uh, their kidney function, minimize the complications, and must be balanced against the quality of life implications such as comfort, convenience, and continence. Uh, in this era, I would uh, divide the bladder management. Uh, from probably scientific way of uh, view into a non-catheter mechanism and catheter mechanism. So uh, the non-catheter mechanisms uh, rely on the involuntary uh, emptying that's either induced or spontaneous. Uh, we'll talk first about the induced here. Uh, some patients will uh, start doing some pressure over their lower belly in order to push the bladder further to empty the urine. What we call it, a uh, valzalva voiding or credium maneuver. They try to increase the abdominal pressure, which helps to overcome the resistance uh, from the sphincter. But sometimes this is uh, not advisable at, it can be cannot, uh, can be inefficient to empty the whole amount of urine or the whole bladder and it gives a risk for high pressure which means, well, sometimes cause the urine to reflux back to the kidneys and this will be harmful. Uh, as well as it might end up getting, patients may get hemorrhoids, hernias from continuous straining. Uh, the spontaneous uh, reflex voiding can occur with a stimulation of certain dermatomes by what we call the suprapupic tapping. When the patient taps uh, over their belt line, down the road, can stimulate certain dermatome, and then the bladder might empty. Uh, The third one is the condom condom drainage, which is often uh, used to collect the urine uh, in these non-catheter methods, and therefore are more common in male patients. However, it has certain limitations. So for patients using the non-catheter methods, it's important uh, to, to to mention here that regular screening with an ultrasound and urodynamics should be done to avoid complications such as incomplete emptying, which uh, end up causing uh, frequent urine tract infections or stones, as well as a dangerous uh, elevation of the bladder pressure, which might be a uh, Reflecting as a damage to their kidneys so Moving toward uh, the other modalities what we call the, the catheter mechanisms The catheter mechanisms in, in this uh, under this broad term uh, We have uh, different options for bladder drainage uh, We start talking about uh, the most common or the gold standard what we call uh, the clean intermittent catheterization versus the indwelling uh, catheters. Indwelling catheters, it uh, contains a indwelling urethral catheter and indwelling suprapubic catheters. So in terms of intermittent catheterization, this involves insertion of a catheter into the bladder on a regular schedule to empty the bladder. It's important also to use a good technique proper cleaning different catheter types and in order to avoid or reduce the risk of complications and uh, the patient or sometimes the caregiver might insert a catheter into the bladder to keep the bladder from getting full so to do this we need to pass a catheter up to the from the urethra up to the bladder to drain the urine and when done Will remove the catheter and remove and, and retain to normal activities. Usually, this uh, should be done between four to six times per day. The goal is to keep uh, your catheterization volumes less than uh, 250 to 300. So, patient uh, may have to catheterize more or less often, depending on their uh, on how much uh, they drink. Uh, sometimes you might need uh, medications or injection within the bladder. We call it uh, the botulonium toxin injection to keep the bladder quiet, to avoid uh, uh, involuntary bladder contractions in order to prevent uh, leaking and high pressure between the catheterization time. Despite being uh, considering, despite uh, Clean intermittent catheterization is a gold standard, and it's uh, the modality of choice for uh, for majority of the patients, but sometimes it, uh, several patients might not be able to do it for themselves due to certain limitations or inconvenience. So, for example, if the bladder is very small, so you would have to catheterize the bladder very frequently, which might be quite disturbing for a lot of patients. Uh, as well as if your sphincter is overactive, will not relax easily, so the catheter will not pass easily into the bladder. A lot of times, patients might face uh, difficulties traumatizing themselves when they uh, do the catheter uh, insertion, so the catheter might get into a, a false passage, what we call some patient will face a lot of pain when insertion or removal of the catheter as well. So you can use different types of catheter. Doctor often decide with the help with the consultation of the patient what catheter best suit for each patient.
1: Okay, can we just pause here and let try Steve try to join in cuz he can talk about the different types of catheters?
2: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Steve, do you want to maybe just go ahead and tell us about how you got into Euromedical medical and your knowledge about the different types of catheters?
3: Yeah, sure. So shortly after my accident, I had spent some time at uh, First Steps in Regina, the rehab facility. And I met a guy down there that showed me a new type of catheter. They called it a hydrophilic catheter. It was, I believe it was a coloplast skinny calf. And that was the first time that I ever seen uh anything like that obviously prior to that i was using a dry catheter what they call a dry catheter where you lube it up yourself so you would have a blue pad you would lay it across your lap pull out your catheter make sure you're wearing gloves sanit you know sanitize your hands, everything prepare that way Uh, put some lube down run the catheter through the lube and then you would be able to use the catheter Uh, the difference was this was uh, what they call, again, a hydrophilic catheter. I was able to open the packaging um, with, you know, put on a pair of gloves or sanitize my hands. Grab the catheter and not have to lube it up itself. It was already ready to go. So obviously, so when he showed me that, that was a game changer for me. Um, and I started buying off of them and I had to pay cash because they didn't have any benefits or I didn't know anything about even using benefits to buy catheters uh, all i knew was the adl system over the the living system where they supplied you with your certain amount of catheters these dry catheters um, after being down there for a while and using these i would purchase a box at a time and i would use them basically when i would go out in public so uh, caffeine was a lot easier in a public stall if didn't have to bring around a bag of lube and or you know a bag full of like catheters and lube and gloves and hand sanitizers and wipes and the amount of time that it would take to go into a stall and try and do a clean calf in that environment uh, was almost enough so that a person didn't want to go out you know you would Mm -hmm. try not to be put yourself in those situations so I would buy these boxes of hydrophilic speedy caps and I would use them when I went out for dinner or when I was with my friends or I was in public, shopping, whatever. And it made my life a lot easier. And over the course of a year or so of doing that, I also had a hard time after my accident finding employment. And Medical came to me with an idea of why don't I take what I've learned from these hydrophilic catheters and, and the system that they use in Saskatchewan and maybe offer an option to people in Alberta if they haven't heard about it mm-hmm. and so the idea of Euro Medical Alberta started that way and we kind of came in with a different approach everybody at Uromedical is a wheelchair user so they have a spinal cord injury or a spina bifida they have like some sort of neurological condition where they're using the products and that was a big change for me, uh, being able to ask them questions about different types of products and what they like to use and the knowledge that they have around the products was more than what I found here uh, at, you know, your typical healthcare store. Um, I had more confidence asking questions and I had more confidence in them giving me answers. So I believe that was a you know very important aspects that the wheelchair community I thought the wheelchair community was missing here in Alberta, so I wanted to bring that over and I also wanted to educate people on the uh, different options if they hadn't heard about it. So that's kind of the way Euromedical started, and throughout that, I learned a lot more about um, obviously different options for catheters, not just the speedy cap cath- standard hydrophilic catheter.
1: So- What catheter options are available? Good question. So uh, when it comes to catheters, and we're
3: talking uh, your standard in-and-out catheter, uh, there's a ton of options now, and I think the list gets larger all the time. Um, It starts off with your your typical dry catheter, which means it's a a plastic uh, catheter with no coating on it, no lubrication or no hydrophilic um, liquid. It goes from that range, it ranges all the way up to now a catheter that comes uh, pre-lubricated with a sleeve. So it's a protective sleeve that goes over the catheter that you can touch. So in those circumstances where you're in, let's say a bathroom stall uh, in public, and it's always not the most sanitary place in the world. Uh, maybe you don't have uh, hand sanitizer, or maybe you're in a situation where you don't have your hands are dirty, whatever the case might be. You can actually grab the catheter at any part of it over the sleeve and not worry as much about bacteria entering your urethra or bladder. Uh, some catheters now, uh, Hollister has a catheter called Uh, vapor, where it has an insertion tip, so you actually insert the little tip, and then push the catheter through, so no part of the catheter actually touches the outside air or your body, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. Dr. Shemut, you wanted to say something uh, before Steve went into it? What was your thought?
2: Yeah. So, well, uh, thanks, Steve, for this uh, comprehensive feedback about the catheter. I like the way you explain it and the background. Definitely you have it about the catheter, probably different practices, different catheter materials you have been through. So, overall, the debate regarding the ideal catheter for patients performing uh, the in-and-out catheter does not have a clear winner up to date. Options for patients often include the single-use disposable catheter that may be a non-hydrophilic or we call it the conventional catheter or polyvinyl chloride material versus the hydrophilic coated catheter. Alternatively, due to financial limitations, uh, many patients still reuse uh, their uncoated catheter by various unstudied cleaning uh, protocols and uh, Optimal catheter material, uh, cleaning method, catheterization technique remain a controversial topics in urology. There is no evidence that there is one best catheter that fits all patients. Selection of the ideal intermittent catheterization type or technique is a complex uh, balance between the patient's motor function. Uh, the acceptance uh, of the uh, acceptance of doing the intermittent catheterization, quality of life, and probably most of the time economic or financial uh, implications. Uh, whenever possible, from scientific point of view, whenever possible, we advocate the use of hydrophilic or what we call pre-lubricated catheter uh, should be proposed to the patient as the first line option, because uh, they appear to decrease the risk of. Uh, urine tract infections and may result in less uh, injury or trauma to the urethra when doing this uh, procedure uh, many times over the day. As well as, they have a higher convenience and ease of use compared to a conventional or uncoated catheter, where the patient needs to have the lubricant with them, need to lubricate the catheter, or whatever. Uh, in this context, I want to highlight about uh, the reuse of catheter may still in certain points be considered in specific clinical scenarios. However, the patient should be made aware that there are concerns regarding the efficacy and that there is limited evidence to support the cleansing technique for a single-use product. And from economic uh Point of view, the long-term use of hydrophilic or single-use hydrophilic catheters was established, as well as uh, to be a uh, cost-effective means. It's uh, clinically uh, superior. Means it's a saving strategy as well for our healthcare system. Hmm. So, uh, to summarize, uh, the recommendations about the in-and-out catheterization. So we recommend individualizing the selection of the appropriate bladder management strategy in accordance with uh, bladder function, motor and cognitive function for the patient, preference, patient preference, and and quality of life. Uh, Number two, we recommend uh, the use of uh, intermittent catheters, and probably single use over the multiple use as well as hydrophilic catheters or pre-lubricated as they may decrease the frequency of urinary tract infections, as well as they carry less risk of uh, urethral injury. We suggest offering patients, if possible, uh, hydrophilic coated catheters, as they are uh, cost-effective compared to uncoated catheters because they decrease the incidence of urinary tract infection and improve uh, quality of life.
4: All right. Thank you for that summary. Casey, do you mind jumping into a little bit about your story with cathing, kind of, you know, from the acute setting? Did you have a Foley to start, or did you get right into intermittent cathing?
0: I initially had an indwelling catheter in the ICU and more acute stages, and then started... Um, having, um, in and out catheters done when I was in rehab and I actually left rehab doing in and out catheters. Um, I was given the option to do sort of an indwelling for, you know, if needed, but they really kind of did not, they were, they were very much against an indwelling catheter. So I struggled, um, with having to, to do those on my own with limited hand function um, I think the the biggest um, the biggest thing for me was you know unlike a guy where you can just kind of like go in your pants and stick in the catheter it was um, transferring trying to get my pants down and then up was more the the bigger problem with my quad hands um, I did have my mom sew some velcro into some of the crotch of my pants which was really funny. But ultimately, you know, um, I found it really hard to to do intermittent catheters and trying to plan my my day around, you know, my water intake and when I'd have to pee and can I get into this bathroom. Um, so I, I did switch to um, an indwelling catheter to improve my quality of life, and it improved my quality of life immensely.
1: Cool. And then how did that affect your bladder, though, having an indwelling catheter?
0: Yeah, so I I struggled with um, UTIs while doing in-and-out caths. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I had a few less UTIs having uh, an indwelling catheter. But um, I ended up just, you know, still always, It's we're women, you know, it can get messy down there sometimes. So it was it was always just a, a problem. And, uh, but it, you know, the, the good sort of improving my quality of life, being able to get out and not have to worry about that. I just kind of balanced, you know, the, the UTI and being able to have a little bit more freedom.
1: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It does make a big difference. I had an indwelling catheter for the first seven months after being paralyzed, and after they took it out, I really missed it because I was able to drink as much water as I wanted. I was able to see my urine and see how clear it was or whatever and keep an eye on it. And then after not like after having it taken out, I had to really work hard at retraining my bladder, uh, which took a long time. But the quality of life is a very big uh, deciding factor.
3: Yeah. Can I touch, too, on the quality of life, is the importance of quality of life when it comes to using the bathroom and, you, you know, not having um, the luxury of knowing when you have to use the bathroom or being able to avoid on your own? Mm-hmm. Um, quality of life for me means uh, when I do have to use a catheter, I want that catheter to, I want it to be quick. I want it to be convenient. I want it to be easy, and I don't want it to have long-term lasting effects on the inside of my urethra and my bladder. Mm-hmm. Right. So the really importance of uh, not having UTIs, and I mean, there's so many different side effects, and the doctor can speak on this more maybe, but the long-lasting effects of current recovering UTIs in my life was such a an annoyance, and it stopped me from living my life like to the fullest and being happy so uh, having UTIs and being sick or being admitted to the hospital or constant, constantly having incontinence because of a UTI uh, it prevents you from going places with your friends or uh, getting a full-time job sometimes or holding a full-time job because yeah. of missing work and being sick and um and I know the importance of ADL and have, being able to fund everybody for, um, or not being able to fund everybody maybe for to pay for this so that everybody can use these and maybe the, the proof isn't quite there that hydrophilics are that much better and will save that much more money, but I, I feel that for me the quality of life was more, so much more important than, and that's why I would pay for those, you know, those catheters on my own, out of my own pocket at the start until I, I was found that I had insurance mm-hmm. and that, that, that my benefits covered uh, 80% of the cost of these hydrophilics. And, and when I found that out, that was uh, life changing for me as far as being able to use these on a constant basis now. And, and yeah, my, um, my UTIs went down. I mean, it might not work for everybody, and not everybody might have the same outcome. But for me, mm-hmm. personally, that was a big change. My UTIs went down. Um, my quality of life went up. My confidence went up.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I would have be been able to, you know, get full-time employment, part-time employment. I was able to, you know, go out more often. And, and my, it, it, was a, it had a really big impact on my life, yeah. personally. Yeah.
1: So while we're on the topic of quality of life, Dr. Samer, I'd like to ask you about the suprapubic catheter. Um, why might somebody choose that? Uh, why might somebody choose the suprapubic catheter?
2: Okay, first, uh, let me uh, explain a little bit for probably patients, or people who doesn't know what what's the term of indwelling catheter means or what's the difference between uh, the suprapubic and the urethral. So the option of indwelling catheter is used for ongoing protection uh, from the urinary retention or urinary incontinence. So, indwelling catheters use a catheter and a urine collection bag that stays in place all the time. The catheter has a balloon at the tip of the catheter, which sits uh, in the bladder. Once the catheter is in the bladder, the balloon can be inflated to keep the catheter from falling out or deflating whenever uh, when it's time to change the catheter. There are two types of indwelling catheter, the urethral catheters and the suprapubic catheters. Uh, People might uh, call the indwelling catheter as a fully catheter. Uh, The urethral catheter is inserted through the urethra by the physician or the patient or the caregiver or a trained family member, uh, similar to the technique of intermittent catheterization. However, instead of removing the catheter when the bladder is empty, the indwelling uh, catheter stays in the bladder and held in place by a small balloon.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And usually, uh, we do recommend changing uh, those types of catheter between two to four weeks. There are certain advantages and disadvantages for each one of them. Uh, moving toward the suprapupic catheter uh, I would say here the physician or sometimes the radiology will uh, need to make a small incision below the belt line. And this is done under a, a form of anesthesia. Some, most of the time it's a local anesthesia. Uh, where, then the physician would insert the catheter through the small incision into the bladder. The urine drains out from the catheter and is uh, then stored in a collection bag on outside of the body. Again, we do recommend changing this type of catheter uh, every every three to four weeks. Okay. Now, uh, now, in terms of indwelling catheterization are often used uh, initially after spinal cord injury where the patient would be within the spinal shock uh, stage. However, the patients are recommended to transition to a in and out catheterization, if possible, after their discharge from rehab. Uh, as we can see this from uh, medical practice, despite uh, the problems associated with the indwelling catheters, with urethral or suprapubic, many patients uh, with a spinal cord injury uh, still changed from intermittent catheter to indwelling catheters over time, and it's approximately between 30% to 50% of patients would change to this type of catheter. Uh, the long-term use of indwelling catheter is often uh, recommended as a last resort, except for certain uh, certain clinical scenarios, for example, quadriplegic patients where they, they have uh, an impaired uh, uh, dexterity or patients who are bedridden or in a situation that in and out catheter is difficult or impossible. Uh, moving toward uh, the suprapubic catheter, we said the SPC, the, it offers uh, certain advantages when compared to uh, the other modality, which is the urethral. Uh, so suprapubic catheters, uh, it may improve the inpatient uh, independence. It facilitate engagement in sexual activities and decrease the the risk of urinary tract infections. So recent report and guidelines show it, the rate of urinary tract infections is uh, more or less comparable between the suprapubic and uh, intermittent catheterization. Well, this is an important information that patients uh, need to know about it. So practitioners should advise patients of risk and benefits. However, uh, the data regarding whether and willing catheter are more dangerous uh, has been questioned as well. Okay,
1: yeah, that's really good to know. Um, Casey, do you want to chime in and tell us a little bit, bit about your experience with the suprapubic and um, when in your journey you decided to go that route?
0: I was actually introduced to the super suprapubic catheter about 17 years post-injury by a friend And, you know, I may have heard it in my past, but it wasn't ever something that was, you know, being practiced or, or I didn't know anybody else that had one. And my friend very boldly said, come into the bathroom, I'll show you. And I was like, okay, sure. So she showed me and it was really just, you know, a couple inches above her pubic bone, um, just a a tube. Um, And she said it it was just really life-changing for her. So I looked into it, I went and have a had a consultation. And I think the the biggest selling point I guess for me was, you know what, if I didn't like it, just take it out and the hole will close over and you can just go back to doing and catheters. So um about 18 years post injury, I had the procedure done. Um, you know, it was it was a day surgery went in they basically kind of uh, stab something into your stomach and then put a tube in there.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, my recovery time, it did take about a, about a month. I think I had a UTI when I went in for it. And then having to just have the one catheter in there for the four weeks post-injury, you know, I, had a, I had a pretty bad bladder infection. But when I came out of that, it, it was incredible um you know I didn't I my my bits were freed up it was very kind of weird to not have a catheter or feel a catheter you know when I was transferring um or just like being down in my my lady parts I guess
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh it did take me a while to kind of wrap my head around looking at my stomach having a tube in there Mm -hmm. um but it is what it is now and it's healed up it's it's fine. I I don't longer think it looks weird. And, um, my husband was just kind of like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, he's kind of very supportive in anything that helps improve my quality of life. Yeah. And it has impacted my life. Huge. Like I, I, I rarely get UTIs. In fact, last year, all of 2020, I had one UTI, which is like monumental. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it, again, just allows me to drink a ton of water. I'm able to change it on my own. Um, I actually change mine every um, two weeks or, um, you know, some sometimes it's one week or three weeks. I never let it go to the four weeks.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Um, Dr. Shamut, would you mind explaining exactly, like, what the surgery entails for a suprapubic catheter?
2: Yep, uh, usually as a practice, uh, it depends on the situation where we need to put uh, the, the suprapubic catheter. So, for example, sometimes when we do this procedure on, on the emergency, uh, we do it uh, under local anesthesia. There's a special set for that uh, that comes already with the catheter, the needles, all these details. Uh, but most of the time for people with a spinal cord injury, currently uh, we refer them to interventional radiology where they have all the facility and the equipment entitled, they fill the bladder for the patient, and then with the use of the ultrasound, they direct their needle to, uh, or the puncture to be directly to the bladder, minimizing, uh, let's say the risk of injury to surrounding organs. And then uh, once they made the incision to the bladder, the catheter will be passed over a, a guide wire mm-hmm. and then fixed in a place, whether a balloon or like a stitch. And uh, the patient, it's called a, a day. Has, I won't call it a day surgery, rather than a, a day procedure or something like that. So uh, the patient, uh, the patients usually go home uh, within the same day. They might experience uh, possible blood coming with urine, as this is related to the incision. Sometimes infection around the, the suprapubic catheter port.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: This is over the short term. Over the long term, uh, some patients will have difficulty, like if uh, leaking around the catheter port, so they might upgrade the size of the uh, the suprapupic, or they might need to take some medication to relax the bladder. Mm-hmm. Uh, other thing that if the catheter felt and the patient didn't replace the catheter, say momentarily, the, the opening might, you know, reduce in size or might close. So those are the common things that we see in practice. But overall, like we do believe in a suprapubic catheter as a good uh, solution.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: definitely uh, the gold standard or the first uh, that we advocate is the intermittent catheterization.
1: Okay. And then how is a suprapubic catheter managed?
2: Okay. So uh, most of the time, uh, the patient would... Uh, whether they change it themselves or they present here, for example, to the nurse practitioner or their family physician, or we do here at the Alberta Bladder Health Center, we do have frequent uh, suprapubic catheterization, whether on the regular follow-up with the patient or it's uh, it's recommended uh, three uh, every three to four weeks to have this catheter change, except if the patient is having a um, Continuous leakage, for example, around the catheter, or there is a sign and symptoms of uh, infection, then at this point we need to change the catheter. Have and having done other recommended investigations, uh, the catheter is fixed in place with a balloon. The balloon uh, is within the bladder, so basically it doesn't need an uh, regular care other than uh, some cleaning around the catheter port. Okay. Yeah, sometimes patients might, might notice uh, a little bit of tissues or debris within the urine bag.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: However, this could be a, a sign of urine infection or sometimes just be some depressed And without any symptoms, we should just uh, keep an eye or just ignore it.
1: Okay, cool. I know you, um, almost all of you have mentioned UTI in this episode, and so I'd like to go into a little bit more detail about that. So Dr. Schmuth, do you mind explaining what is a UTI?
2: So uh, urinary tract infections are significant problems for a patient with a spinal cord injury uh, and untreated uh, bladder infections, and in, in those patients can lead to a significant uh, morbidity uh, however, uh, spinal cord injury patients can also be subjected to uh, what we can say an over-screening and treatment for suspected uh, urinary tract infections which uh, can cause an antibiotic resistance and uh, financial burden. So overall, UTIs remain difficult to diagnose, treat, and prevent in this uh, population. Uh, it has been estimated that an overall all rate of uh, UTI in patients with uh, spinal cord injuries around uh, two and a half episodes per patient per year, and that one in five patients would suffer from a recurrent urinary tract infections. Accurate diagnosis of uh, urinary tract infections in uh, in those uh, patients is uh, of paramount importance but is often clouded by the high rate of, uh, you know, lower intract tract colonization and the difference within the clinical presentation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, in terms of diagnosis or definitions of urinary tract infection, it, it differs within this population. Uh, currently, uh, the accepted definition of UTI in person with uh, spinal cord injury would require the presence of what we call leukocyturia. Which is the blood cells within the urine, bacteria, plus clinical symptoms. In general, there are no evidence based cut off values for the presence of bacteria, but there are uh, some accepted guidelines I'd advocate for some numbers. And it depends on the way of collection of urine so whether it is a voided uh, sample, whether it is uh, taken from the catheter, or whether it's an, from the suprapubic and aspirate. Mm-hmm. The International uh, Spinal Cord Injury Society has developed a UTI dataset that outlines the signs and symptoms and include uh, fever, urinary incontinence, leaking around the catheter, increased spasticity, fatigue, uh, cloudy urine, malodorous urine, back pain, bladder pain, uh, painful urination, and So beside those symptoms, uh, so urine culture should always be obtained prior to a given antimicrobial or antibiotic treatment, as this will help to uh, minimize the multidrug-resistant future-wise. So, urine culture should be routinely performed as a part of evaluation in the spinal cord injury patients. Even if positive findings are found on the urine analysis, so that bacteria can be correctly identified and the proper antibiotic regimen selected. Okay. Um, Another important point I want to highlight in this interim, that when assessing a catheter-associated urine tract infection means a patient is managing his bladder with a catheter and he's presenting with a a symptom suggestive of... uh, Because a lot of time we see in the practice that patients might often do you frequent uh, urine tests and just finding uh, some bugs in the urine and then they will proceed with antibiotic. So when assisting a catheter associated uh, urine infection, urine should be obtained from a new urinary catheter.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Urine obtained from a collection bag, even if a new, should be considered contaminated. And culture data should be interpreted, you know, with skepticism. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's an important and the final point. I want to say that treatment for what we call this term asymptomatic bacteria means just finding some bacteria within the urine while the patient have no symptoms was not recommending at or was not recommended at all for people with indwelling catheter or people with a spinal cord injury, except in two situations. If, uh, for example, a spinal cord injury patient have a um, is going through a surgery operation, or in case of pregnancy. Otherwise, we don't treat a urine tract infection unless it's symptomatic, with a proven culture of urine as well.
1: Okay, um, and then, what if somebody takes like too many antibiotics? Are there risks or side effects associated with that?
2: Yeah, before before going through the multiple antibiotics or the multi-drug resistant that would happen uh, when the patient often have a certain practice. They have, for example, minimal symptoms or whatever, and they think, oh, this is a urine tract infection. I have this experience before, so I need to jump in and do a urine test, and then I have to take antibiotic. Or some patient might be on a prophylactic antibiotic for a long term, and uh, they end up having a multi-drug resistant uh, antibiotic where when it comes to a real UTI, you don't have a weapon to shoot with, and other than the, you know, the regular side effects for taking uh, antibiotics for a long time. So I would talk first about the risk factors for developing uh, UTI in spinal cord injury patients. So a UTI can be caused by an underlying pathophysiology, which predisposes the patient to UTI, there's several uh, factors or several models for categorizing the UTI risk factor for those patients. I would uh, go over some of them, which is generally comes under uh, one of these problems, whether the patient have problems storing the urine, have problems uh, emptying the urine, have um, the problems with catheterization. So in terms, uh, it could be of the risk factor, the bladder over distention. It's, uh, it's often postulated, uh, that the resulting, uh, what's called susceptible of infection and colonization could be a result of storing the urine, uh, for a long time without, uh, efficient emptying of the bladder.
1: Okay.
2: Yeah, uh. Other factor I would mention, consequently, uh, it's recommended that a spinal cord injury patient with a recurrent UTIs and uh, high standing volume should catheterize more frequently. Right. Yeah, this is important. Uh, another point, what we call the low bladder compliance, or what is a high pressure within the bladder, is a is a common problem among spinal cord injury patient. Uh, it's thought that uh, this high bladder pressure can precipitate for urine tract infection and more, more likely to kidney infections through the reflex of the urine back to the kidney. Mm-hmm. And it has been reported that up to uh, one-third of spinal cord injury patients have, uh, have had a low bladder compliance, uh, including complete and incomplete injury, uh, spinal cord injury categories. So the only way we can identify this uh, problem within the bladder is through the urodynamic test. What we have discussed about previously.
1: Okay, um, and then does water consumption affect UTIs? Like, can can you flush it out?
2: Well, this is a <laughs> this is an important concept. A lot of patients will say, "Okay, I'm drinking a lot of water, but despite that, I'm having uh, a frequent UTIs." Uh, so it's important to maintain a Regular and normal water intake, fluid balance, and that's depend on many factors, including you know the body mass index for the patient, his age, his activity level. So, so maintaining water intake within um, two liters is important, as well as uh, beside the other factors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not as a preventive one hundred percent within this population.
1: Okay, that's fair. Um, Casey, I wanted to ask you about um, your experience with UTIs and if you've experienced any AD because of a UTI.
0: I have, sadly, uh, a lot of experience with UTIs. Not so much um, these days, which is fantastic, but yes, I've encountered um, and still do have symptoms of AD when I, when I got, get a bladder infection. So some of my symptoms are um, like I'll sweat on one side of my forehead and my neck. It's so weird. like Because um, my injury doesn't allow me to fully uh, perspire. Um, right. I will literally, like you could probably just draw a line in my forehead and see sweat on one side. And with my upper lip, just sweat on one side of my face. So
1: interesting.
0: Um, uh, it's just a general feeling of unwell and you know like it's like there's there's an undercurrent um preventing me from feeling optimal Mm -hmm. um other than that it's usually that the sweating and being a little bit more fidgety and spasms definitely
1: okay and then how long does the uti usually last for you
0: um I try to well what I do is I have a standing requisition for for lab for mm-hmm. your analysis um, that my doctor had given me and it does say to culture which is hugely important so as soon as I start, sort of start to feel three symptoms you know I'm I'm only able I'm only allowed to put in a sample if I have at least three symptoms okay and um, so if it starts Feeling bad, I try and get my sam- my sample in right away, and then I'm usually given uh, about a ten a ten day round of antibiotics. Okay. But usually, even after two days of being on antibiotics, my symptoms tend to start going away, and I'll immediately um, change my change my catheter, and then sort of halfway through my antibiotics, change my catheter again, so I'm getting rid of that bacteria.
1: Okay, cool, and then. I wanted to ask you too because you're, well, the only one on this episode that has been pregnant and has had a kid post-injury. And so how did that, how did being pregnant um, affect your bladder? And then did you have any UTIs while you were pregnant?
0: (laughs) So I guess it's very common for just women in general to have UTIs when they're pregnant. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And when I was pregnant, I did have a few and it sucked. You know, it's just like, okay, but you know, we'll just deal with it. And it was very specific to which trimester I was in, um, which antibiotics I was allowed to be given. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And actually towards the end of my pregnancy, I did have a UTI and there was actually nothing they could give me because I was so far along. Okay. So just having to, I guess, deal with it was kind of weird. But just drinking tons of water and laying down, relaxing and staying away from things that I shouldn't you know, be drinking like, you know, sugary beverages and uh, keeping my parts clean. That was, yeah.
1: Okay. And then while you were pregnant, did you experience any AD because of a UTI?
0: Oh yeah, probably. Um, Again, the sweating, spasms, definitely sweating and spasms. Those are my two, my two main ones.
1: Okay. Interesting. That's
0: I'm always so fascinated about all this stuff because it's like,
1: you know, able-bodied people is one thing. But when you have a spinal cord injury, there's so many other factors that can affect um, your bladder health. So thank you for being open to sharing that stuff with us. <laughs> it's my pleasure. Um, Steve, I'd like to ask you about your experience with UTIs and how, you know, did you have a lot of them? How long did they last? And what did you do to um, heal them up?
3: Yeah, Um. definitely struggle with bladder infections, UTIs, uh, at the beginning of uh, my recovery, my injury. Um, I found that through to overtime, I was able to recognize them uh, sooner. Uh, I did get some pretty bad UTIs where I did end up uh, in the hospital on IV. For, you know we've get a time this happened probably four times. so instead of going in when I started to feel awful and like my symptoms would be a little bit different Caseys obviously like everybody's are a little bit different. Um, I'll, I'll my, like my first signs will be uh, frequent uh, low volumes yeah when I eat calf mm-hmm. that's like a big sign right away. Uh, I'll also feel, I'll start to feel unwell after that. So like, my skin hurts, I'm cold, I get the shivers, Mm -hmm. I can't warm up. Mm -hmm. And once it gets to that point, is usually when I'm like, okay, I need antibiotics. Um, I have a good relationship with my doctor, obviously, most people with spinal cord injuries might (laughs) have that. (laughs) Um, So I I can call the office, I I can just say, listen, these are my symptoms, he knows I've been doing this for 10 years and he's like okay yeah sounds like you have it go bring a, you know a sample in if you want
4: mm-hmm. or he'll ask me to bring a sample in um, but will get me on
3: antibiotics right away and for the most part i mean i, I know other physiatrists that i've talked to have have said that it's not always a good idea to do this because you're getting the same uh, i'm usually using the same antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And it might not always be the same infection. But it does, like Casey said, uh, two days into it, um, you start feeling better. Um, you know, you're not, you know, talking as much. Mm-hmm. Your pain, you're warming up, you're, everything starts to feel better. Um, but it did change also, you know, when I started using a different type of catheter. Or when I, when I wasn't reusing that catheter, um, saying that it still, I still get them from time to time and it's still going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's just, you really want to focus on being
4: clean and careful. And I mean, those are two big steps that you can take yourself, but you will yeah. not eliminate the fact that you will never get a, uh, a UTI again. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. And then Bean, can we talk a little bit about your experience with UTIs?
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, I didn't have a UTI until about two years after being paralyzed and I got my first UTI when I was in Banff with my friends and I wasn't sure what was happening. I would have like sudden urge to pee and, um, I don't use a catheter anymore. I void kind of like normal in quotation marks. Um, and so I can feel when I have to empty my bladder. And so what was happening was I would feel like I'd have to go pee. I'd transfer onto the toilet and nothing would come out. And then I'd transfer back onto my wheelchair and then I would pee on my wheelchair. And it was quite frustrating because I'm like, body, you have to pee in the toilet, not on the chair. Uh, that was my first experience with it. And when I came back to Edmonton, I went to the doctor, took in a sample and got antibiotics for it. Um, I've only had a handful of UTIs since then which i'm very very grateful for um and i have used um uh, different types of antibiotics for the utis but now i just try to um pro like proactively stay healthy with with my water consumption and making sure i'm not like casey said drinking overly sugary drinks and uh, trying to maintain my bladder health um and then, with that, I guess, Doctor Shmutz, wife, one of our final questions for you is: Is there anything people can do to proactively maintain better bladder health?
2: Well, uh, it's important to maintain the healthy preventive measures and to uh, work and with uh, with us, with the support of their treating physician in terms of the modifiable risk factors that we we went over uh, which include in general speaking about bladder distinction. So we need to ensure if the patient is emptying their bladder uh, well with a minimal uh, residual. Uh, number two, we need to ensure that the bladder pressure was the compliance, they have a normal bladder compliance to avoid uh, the infection going uh, back to their kidneys. And then we need to identify if they have any stones or not, sometimes these stones can act as a nidus for frequent uh, infections. Mm-hmm. And then what I do in the clinic, I usually review the catheter practice with the patient. Uh, like I ask them, what exactly you do if you assume yourself now, you're going to do a catheter, what is your practice in terms of using the catheter, whether you use single use or multiple use? how many times, I'm asking in more details, what about your water intake, how many times you use the catheter a day, what type of catheter is it, uh, is it a compact catheters? and how much you emptied every time you uh, insert the, the catheter. So there's a lot of factors I usually view with the patient. And in terms of, uh, of other risk factors, I haven't uh, got time to go all over that. Uh, A lot of patients will have what we call neurogenic bowel. They have uh, difficulty emptying their bowel and uh, sometimes changing within the colon motility and the sphincter function, which uh, put them at risk for constipation. And uh, this will, uh, you know, make emptying their bladder uh, inefficient over the long term. Mm -hmm. So uh, in general, the treatment, uh, the evaluation or the algorithm for uh, patients going through the spinal cord injury going through a UTI. So I, we are doing initial evaluation. We assist for the UTI symptoms, and then we assist for alternative source of symptoms. So might patient have a other source of infection, whatever ulcers, pneumonia. So if there's no symptoms, no culture, no urine test. Uh, and important points to highlight, urine analysis uh, is not diagnostic if the patient has a catheter. A mm-hmm. uh, urine Urine cannot be taken from the collection bag. Urine culture should be taken from a new catheter. And for symptomatic UTI, whenever there's um, symptoms, it's it has been recommended that practitioners choose a five to seven day treatment plan for uh, spinal cord injury patients with uh, a new UTIs without fevers, mm-hmm. and seven to ten days treatment regimen for recurrent UTIs without fever and 14 days for uh, spinal cord injury patients with UTI, with fevers. And then we have to work um, in, in a team for modification of risk factors, and this include that uh, we can do a urodynamics to identify their baseline bladder function, if they identify their uh, bladder capacity, bladder compliance, and then sometimes we might need to proceed for an imaging, renal bladder scan, bowel proper bowel management, reviewing of their catheterization practice, uh, this is the most important things I want to highlight. There's other practices, for example, the cranberry supplements is popular over-the-counter supplement and used uh, for prevention or, let's say, as a preventive measure for urinary tract infection mm-hmm. uh, due to a compound in the berry that may inhibit the adherence of the bugs to the bladder wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's helpful certainly it's helpful and we advise patient uh, to go over to go over this however certain uh, uh, studies uh, stated that cranberry ap- appears to be protective in general population and reduce the UTI incidence by more than 60% you know in spinal cord injury patients at the clinic from a clinical point of view i see a lot of patients at the clinic and they say oh i've done all the measures and then i'm still struggling with the uh, with UTI, so sadly speaking, so a lot of patients will continue to have a chronic tract infection despite aggressive preventive measures.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, this could be due to many factors, refractory bladder physiology, uh, physical challenges, lack of supplementary or caregiver support, wherever. So mm-hmm. urologists at this point, they should review uh, each case um, comprehensive and uh, you know mm-hmm. identify if there is any modifiable risk factors we can do, yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, thank you for that information. Casey or Steve, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add?
3: I'm good, Bean. Yeah, I think think we touched on a little bit of everything.
2: That was great.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I think we did too. That's awesome. And Dr. Shmoot, do you have anything else you'd like to add?
2: Yes, the last point I would talk about is how frequent or how often should the patient with a spinal cord injury do a follow-up with their physician? what we call it a surveillance or follow-up. So after initial assessment and the treatment to, uh, to optimize the bladder function, spinal cord injury patients are followed with a regular clinical assessment. And mm-hmm. in some cases, we need to do a certain investigation. So typically, uh, surveillance protocols or follow-up protocols uh, suggest uh, either on-demand or a regular scheduled uh investigation, for example, a urodynamic test, upper tract imaging, uh, cystoscopies, which is a camera within the bladder. And there's a little agreement on a specific approach. However, we suggest uh, that we stratify patients based on their urological risk factor. And uh, we recommend a specific investigations. So we stratify our patients into high risk, moderate risk, and low risk. And within each board, uh, within each uh, patient or risk factor category, and then we assign them to a certain investigation. For example, if they are a high-risk uh, uh, spinal cord injury patient, we would recommend a yearly to have a urodynamic test, a yearly renal bladder imaging, and a yearly renal function assessment. There's different criteria for each. Uh. For moderate risk patient, we do recommend a periodic urodynamic uh, between every two to five years a yearly renal function assessment, which is a blood test for kidney function, and a yearly renal uh, bladder imaging. So, uh, all in all, uh, we recommend a regular yearly clinical assessment for all spinal cord injury patients with their neurologist, family physician. We recommend that a urologist is involved in the assessment of patients who are in the moderate or high-risk categories, as I mentioned earlier.
1: Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah, that was all really great information. And um, I'd like to just thank all of you guys for joining us and for being so open with your stories and your information. Our li- I know our listeners are grateful for it too, as we love being able to share real life information as well as educated information from clinicians. So on behalf of Nancy and I, thank you all for joining us. And If anybody has any questions for you guys, send us an email or send us a message on our anonymous form and we'd be happy to pass those questions on to our guests here today. So with that being said, thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. As always, we would greatly appreciate if you could subscribe, leave us a five-star review and a comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts as this helps us increase our reach. And stay tuned for another episode coming at you in two weeks.